The reason why we chose that song this morning is that the passage of Scripture that we are going to look at this morning in 2 Samuel 11 is a heavy passage. It's a passage about sin. It's a passage about failure. And it's important for us to remember that as we look at a passage like this and sometimes uh, start thinking about our own sin and our own failure, it's important for us to remember the cross, that it is at the cross that we find complete forgiveness. It is putting our trust in the person of Jesus Christ, that he is God, that he died in our stead and rose again from the dead, that gives us hope, that reminds us that when we put our trust in him, the Father no longer no longer views us as a sinner but as a saint, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He remembers our sin no more. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sin from us. And it's important for us to remember the cross when we come to a passage like 2 Samuel 11. It's also important for us to heed the warning of 2 Samuel 11. This passage is here for us. It's here for you. It's here for me. It's a reminder that if King David... A man that God says is after his own heart in 1 Samuel 13 verse 14. If he can succumb to the type of sin that we find in 2 Samuel 11, so can I. So can you. None of us are exempt from what we're going to find in this chapter. Last week in 2 Samuel chapter 10, we noted that David has started more and more in his life to be marked by self-dependence rather than God-dependence. That he is in the midst of victory, in the midst of peace in the land, in the midst of everything going right in his life, he has slowly... Stop depending on God. And we saw three hints of that last week. We noted that no longer does Second Samuel record for us that David inquired of the Lord after the victories started coming. We stopped seeing him pray, asking God for direction. We also noted there's a little word, sent. Then in chapter 10, 11, and 12 is used 23 times. And in the context of those chapters, it shows us that David, so comfortable in victory, resting so much in peace, has stopped actually carrying out the duties that he is to hold as Israel's king, leading the people of Israel out fighting God's battles against those who are against God. Instead, he just sends a general. And finally, we noted that as this book has unfolded, every time David finds victory, he adds wives. He adds to his harem, even though Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17 clearly states that the king is not supposed to multiply wives. So David, 
as things get better in his life, starts depending on God less. Which brings us to chapter 11. I'm going to read it. You can follow along in your copy of the scripture. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a beautiful woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I'm pregnant. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out to the king's house and a present from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Now, when they told David, saying Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, stay here today also, and tomorrow I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day. And the next, now David called him and he ate and drank before him and he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go down to his house. Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So it was as Joab kept watch on the city that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. He charged the messengers, saying, When you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king, and if it happens that the king, king's wrath rises and he says to you, Why did you go near the city to fight? Do you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerebesheth? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did he go so near the wall? Then you shall say, 
your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger departed, came and reported to David all that Joab had said to him. The messenger said to David, the men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field, but we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at our servants from the wall. So some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Then David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this thing displease you for the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it, and so encourage him. Now, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife, and she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. This morning as we come to this critical text, 2 Samuel chapter 11, we are reminded of the dangers of everything going right. We're reminded of the dangers of peace in our lives because when everything's going right and we seem to have victory wherever we turn, we start thinking it's because of us and not God. We start depending on ourselves instead of God. We become self-dependent instead of God-dependent. And then we fall. And as we see here today, sin always has consequences. As my wife Barbara and I have been getting a little bit older, we're trying to eat more healthy. You may not think that as I talk about food all the time, but we are trying to eat more healthy. And one of the things that we started doing is eating a smoothie in the morning. We put things in there that shouldn't be drunk, like kale, kale and chia seeds, and the blueberries are good. Well, a week or two ago, Barbara made a smoothie for me, and we're always in a rush. She has to get going. I have to get going. So I was drinking my smoothie in the car on the way to the office, and right before I arrived at the office, she sent me a text. I parked the car, looked at my phone, and it says, check your teeth. Good advice. So I smiled into my mirror and right smack in the middle of my front two teeth is a little tiny piece of green kale. It's just little. It's just a little tiny piece of kale. What difference would that make? Well, fortunately, I was warned by my wife because if I would have gone through the day with that little tiny, tiny piece of kale in my teeth, it would have rendered my communication throughout the day useless. Because everyone with whom I tried to correspond would either say, look at Gomer Pyle, or they'd be spending the entire time I was talking, thinking through the question, should I tell him or not? Should I? Shouldn't I? And never hear a word I would say. Just one little tiny speck 
renders me useless. One of the things we're going to see here in 2 Samuel 11 is that David thought his sin was just a little speck of kale. It's not that big of a deal. It's, it's just not that important. No one will even think about it. It won't affect me at all. Remember, he's self-dependent, not God-dependent. So as we come to this sad chapter, we also come knowing that God has it here for a purpose. To remind you, to remind me, that if David, a man after God's own heart, can succumb to the levels of sin that we find recorded here, so can I. And so can you. The chapter opens in verses 1 through 5. Self-dependent David, not God-dependent. Self-dependent believer, sinning. When he sees, and he wants, and he takes. Verse 1 is an important verse. It's a hinge between chapter 10 and chapter 11. It tells us that it happened in the spring. Literally, the Hebrew text says, at the return of the year. So we are one year after the events of chapter 10, when the Ammonites and the Arameans coupled together to try to go to battle against Israel. One year has passed. When the Arameans and the Ammonites went up against Israel, David's had lots of victory. He just decided, I'll send Joab, my general. And he sent him. With great result, they won. They're victorious. Here in chapter 11, once again, David sends. It tells us in verse 1, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. Victory again. And then we come to the little clause, the little last part of verse 1, that stands out and says, but, but, David stayed at Jerusalem. You see, chapter 11, verse 1 is a hinge that reminds us that David doesn't fall into sin here just on a moment's notice. He's actually been preparing for this. Not in his awareness, but he's been preparing for this because he is growing more and more independent from God. He sent Joab before, he sends him again. He stays at home. Well, the text continues in verse 2 that he had been resting, was restless, got up and went up onto his rooftop, and low down below, he sees a woman bathing. It says that he saw her. And it says in verse 2, the woman was very beautiful in appearance. Now, there is no guilt here in verse 2. It's not David's fault that he saw a woman. It's not the woman's fault that she is beautiful. 
There's no guilt here at all until we get to verse 3. Because David isn't happy with just seeing. He doesn't stop there. He sees and he wants. Once again, we see our little key word in verse 3. Once again, David sent someone. This time he sends and inquires about who is this woman? The word gets back and says, well, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam. Now we know that Eliam is the son of Ahithophel, David's trusted counselor. So this is the granddaughter of one of David's closest confidants. They are close. We see Ahithophel in chapter 15, verse 12, chapter 23, verse 34. He is David's counselor. This is his granddaughter. We also see that this woman is married to a man named Uriah the Hittite, most likely Uriah's family, even before he was born, migrated into Israel and became proselytes of Israel's religion. Israel's God became their God. And Uriah actually has a Israelite name. She's married. In fact, we know from chapter 23, verse 39, that Uriah is one of David's best soldiers, the top 30. He's the best of the best. He's faithful to David. And yet, once again, David and his self-dependence, we see the word sent. And in chapter 4, or excuse me, chapter 11, verse 4, it says, David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her. Now we notice in verse 4, there's a reference to purifying uh, washings, purification washings, that she had been doing, recorded for us in chapter 4. That goes back to Leviticus chapter 12 and chapter 15 and chapter 18. She has just completed her cycle. The reason why that's here is that it's telling us clearly there's no way that Bathsheba was with child by her husband. Setting us up for what comes in verse 5, except in verse 5, David's not the one sending. She is. Now Bathsheba sends. And she just sends a message of two words. That's it. In the Hebrew text, it's just two words. It's the Hebrew word for I. It's the Hebrew word for pregnant. I pregnant. You see... He saw, he wanted, and he took. One of the main applications that our human author of the book wants us to see as we see First and Second Samuel as a whole is the fact that the main one of the main threads running through these books is asking the question. Who is worthy to be Israel's king? Who qualifies to be God's co-regent upon the throne? Who is fit to sit on the throne? Well, certainly not Saul. 
In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 10 through 18, God, through the prophet Samuel, when Israel first asked for a king, said, Why do you want a king? I'm your king. If you have an earthly king, he's just going to take. He's going to take your land. He's going to take your produce. He's going to take your sons and daughters. And that's exactly what David does here. You see, one of the main lessons we learn from 1 Samuel 11 is that When we put people on a pedestal, we are always disappointed because people aren't supposed to be there. God is the only one that the scripture lifts up. God is the only one to be glorified, not people. In 1987, I was in my third year at Dallas Theological Seminary, and my accountability partner and I decided to read this book together, Ordering Your Private World by Gordon MacDonald, who was the then president of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. While we were reading the book, it came out that MacDonald was caught in, in, a, in, in an affair, an adulterous affair. I was so angry because this book had just come out. He had written this book while he was having his affair. And I didn't even finish it. I was so mad. Well, I stayed mad about that. And then time passed. He truly repented his walking with Jesus. And over time, we're all reminded that if we put a person on a pedestal, they're going to disappoint because we're all potential sinners. We can all fall into the same trap that David does here. We let each other down. We fail because we're not supposed to be on the pedestal God is. But we also have to learn, as 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, these things are here for us for our example so that we can learn from them. So we want to see what teed David up for this sin. What put him in the position where this man of God from chapter 1 through chapter 9 who has just had a heart for the Lord, how did he ever end up in chapter 11? And we're reminded of his self-dependence. And in his self-dependence, instead of God-dependence, he saw. And what he should have done is fled. Remember 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, There's not any sin, that uh, temptation that God hasn't made a way for us out of it. We're reminded in Romans 6 that as a Christian, I don't have to sin. David didn't have to sin here. But in his self-dependence, he was not prepared for that crossroad. That split second when all of life can change. And all of a sudden, he saw that beautiful woman. And instead of turning, he wanted and he took. Self-dependence. Remember, we've talked about this last week, that... Some of the signs that we need to be looking for in our own lives that we see in David's life, clues that we're starting to become self-dependent, is when we stop praying. We stop expressing our dependence on the Lord. We stop starting every, we stop 
starting every day by by asking the Lord to fill us and control us by His Spirit. Father, you know, Ephesians 5.18 tells me I'm supposed to be filled, I'm supposed to be controlled by your Spirit. Please fill me today. Apart from you, I can do nothing. I need you today to help me through my day. The other thing that David does here is in his self-dependence, he stops carrying out the duties that are his to carry out. He just sends somebody. He's so caught up in pride, he starts shirking his responsibilities. And then he starts just ignoring God's word. Deuteronomy 17, 17 says, don't multiply wives. What's he do? Every time he has another victory, he adds more wives. He just starts ignoring it. And it's a reminder to us, if I'm stopping in my prayer life, if I'm not taking in a regular diet of God's word, if I'm shirking my responsibilities and and not being with my brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm on dangerous ground. Because those are all signs that I'm growing more self-dependent than God-dependent. Well, what happens here in chapter 11 next is common when we're depending on self instead of God. Instead of dealing with sin, we try to cover it up. We try to cover up those consequences, and that's exactly what David does in verses 6 through 25. One of my professors at Dallas Theological Seminary, Dr. Tom Constable, who's actually been here at Faith Bible Church, wrote this about these verses. He says, David follows three cover-ups. A clean one, verses 6 through 11. A dirty one, verses 12 through 13. And a criminal one, verses 14 through 17. The clean one is he tries to get Uriah to come home Go home, be with his wife, so that everybody will think that she is with child because of her husband's arrival. The dirty one is that when that didn't work, he tries to get Uriah intoxicated to impair his judgment, so then he will go and spend the evening with his wife so that everybody will think the child is his. The criminal one is he orders David's, excuse me, he orders Uriah's death. Let's look at it in a little more detail. Let's start in verse 6. Once again, our little keyword sent. Then David sent to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Uriah comes. Verse 7 is just a sham. It's a farce. David says to him, well, how's the battle going? As if that's why he has sent for Uriah. He didn't need to know how the battle was going. There are regular messengers telling him how the battle's going. And when he's done hearing from Uriah, he says, now in verse 8, go home, wash your feet. Most likely that's a euphemism for David telling Uriah to go home and have relations with his wife. But instead, it tells us in the text, Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord. David says, why didn't you go home? You've been on the battlefield. Uriah demonstrates in verse 11 that he is more God-dependent than David. And he says to the king, 
the one who's supposed to be representing God himself on the throne. The ark of Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters. My Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. He saw it as evil to go experience the joy of being with his wife when his fellow soldiers who are fighting for the Lord can't have the same pleasure. So David moves in his desire to cover up the sin from the clean to the dirty. And in verses 12 and 13, he tries to get David drunk. It's a warning to us all to remember that alcohol impairs judgment. And here, that's exactly what David's trying to do. He's trying to impair Uriah's judgment so that his ideals won't be so distinct. And then he will go be with his wife. But it fails. You see, Uriah intoxicated proves more loyal to the Lord than David does in his sobriety. So then David moves to the criminal And in verse 14, he sends a letter to General Joab, most likely sealed with the king's signet ring, and Uriah is going to bear that letter, his own death warrant, back to the general. You see, they are besieging this city in verse 1 called Rabbah. It would be modern-day Amman, Jordan. That's where they are. And when you besiege a city, you just surround it, And don't let any supplies get in and out. Eventually, they're going to have to give up. There's no need to rush the wall. But David orders Joab to send Uriah in. Joab's concerned that when he finds out that not only Uriah died, but also, and this is so sad, other of David's servants died as well in verse 17, that David would get mad. So Joab tells the messenger, when you go back to David, make sure you tell him your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Verse 21. And then we see David's response. David basically says, go back and tell Joab, hey, it's war. Bad things happen. You'll have a better day tomorrow. Hang in there. You see, David views his sin as something little. This really stands out in verse 25. Thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this thing displease you. Now that little phrase has a very important word in it that we're going to see again in verse 27. But it's showing us that David thinks his sin is just a little thing. It's just a little piece of kale. What's the big deal? No one will even be thinking about this. In fact, David thinks he's successful. Because Uriah is dead. About this time of year, as a kid growing up here in Iowa, 
I started looking forward to being done with school so that I could go to the farm. And my grandpa and my uncle uh, farmed about very small farm, about 200 acres in central Iowa in Adair County. And I would go in the summers for two, three weeks at a time, come home for a little while, get some work done at home, make my mother happy, and then I would go back to the farm. And we worked hard. We made a lot of hay and walked beans. And we'd always get up really early in the morning, go work for a while, come in, have breakfast. At 12 o'clock noon, come in and have a big meal as my grandmother watched as the world turns on TV. Go out and work in the afternoon into the evening, and then about dusk we would come in. I loved the end of the day. I'd go down into the cellar, turned on the shower head, got all clean, came up, had supper, and then we'd go sit in chairs out on the back porch. As those of you who are my era can remember, as you hear the clank of the hog feeders in the background as the hogs would lift up that little metal plate, eat, clank. And we'd sit out there and listen to my grandpa tell stories. Oh, he was the best storyteller. And he would tell stories and start to laugh so hard he'd start to cry. And he would tell us stories about River Rat, who was this old codger who owned the neighborhood corn sheller. And he would go from farm to farm and the neighbors would come in and we'd shell corn and we'd tie twine around our pant legs because there was always rats in the corn crib. And that was the most fun for me because we got to use a 22 pistol and shoot the rats as we shelled corn. And River Rat would sit there with a cigar. He would never light it. He would just chew it and it'd run down his chin. It was just fascinating. Well, one of my grandpa's favorite stories was about one of his neighbors who had a monkey. I loved it when my grandpa would tell the story because he would laugh so hard he'd cry. And this farmer was so proud of his monkey, he would talk about it all the time. He'd want people to come in the house and see his monkey. Well, after a few years, the monkey died. And the farmer was so heartbroken about his dead monkey, he couldn't bring himself to remove the dead monkey from the house. So he just left the dead monkey in his house, in the cage. Now, it'd be the makings of a good Febreze commercial. (laughs) Because there's one universal truth about dead monkeys. They smell. They stink. Oh, it's just a little dead monkey. We'll just cover up the odor. We'll get one of those little air freshener dispensers and lift up the top and maybe vanilla bean would be good. But you can't cover up the stench of a dead monkey. And you can't cover up the stench of sin. David here thinks he gets away with it. And we see a little hint of why he even tries. Because David doesn't view his sin as a big deal. Remember down in verse 25? Don't let this thing displease you. Now that little phrase just jumps off the page when we come to the last two verses of the section. 
in verse 26 and verse 27. Just as David, we fall into the same trap, we start thinking that we get away with sin. But sin does not escape the eyes of the Lord. Bathsheba here hears the word of her husband and his death. And it says she mourned for her husband, verse 26. She would have followed a prescribed period of mourning that would have been very common in the ancient Near East. When that mourning ritual would have been done, it tells us, once again, David sent. He doesn't even go propose. He just sends. He's still self-dependent. I'm the king. He sent, brought her to his house. She became his wife, and she bore him a son. Everybody in town would have thought, oh, what a magnanimous king we have. He's got such a big heart. Uriah's widow Bathsheba was just left there by herself and our precious king opened his home and brought her in. Oh, what a wonderful king we have. That's what people would have thought. David's thinking, "Ah, see, I knew I could work this out. Like I work everything out. It just takes some creative planning and I did it. I've covered this up. Now everybody will forget about it. It's no big deal. David forgets that dead monkeys stink. And David forgets that even if the people around him don't know, someone still sees. The end of verse 27 says, David brought her to his house. She became his wife. She bore him a son. But... The thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, here's what's going on here. This is really neat. Remember in the Hebrew language, when you want to stress something, you really want to drive a point home. Oftentimes, in Hebrew writing, they would use a word play. Maybe they would use two words that sound almost alike. Or maybe sometimes they would repeat a word. And that's exactly what happens here, except in my English Bible, NASB, they use two different English words to translate the same Hebrew words, so it's hard to see. Here's what's repeated. David says to Joab, do not let this thing displease you. It's no big deal. But the thing that David has done was displeasing in the sight of the Lord. It's the same word. David tells Joab, don't let Uriah's death displease you. But the Lord was displeased with Uriah's death. You see, what the text is saying is this. David said, Uriah's death's not that big of a deal. God says, I'm displeased. David's thinking, ah, my sin's not a big deal. It's just a, it's just a little, little piece of kale. God says, I see your sin. And that word displeased is the Hebrew word for evil. It's evil. It's the stench of a dead monkey in my nostrils. David says, I've covered it up. 
God says, I've seen everything you've done. Several years ago, Barbara and I were in northern Indiana, and I was interviewing a man as a potential pastor to add to our staff. Well, we arrived, I think, like on a Friday evening, and uh, our interview lasted about 10 minutes. Because the guy I was interviewing, 10 minutes into the interview, takes his shoes off, takes his socks off, and starts picking between his toes. And I thought to myself, interview done. Just a hint to you young people, when you apply for a job someday, maybe don't take off your shoes and socks and start cleaning out your toes in front of the guy who's interviewing you or the lady who's interviewing you. Not a good move. So I politely said, even though we had two days set aside for an interview, I said, you know what? I just don't think we're going to be a good match for you. We, we kind of like it when our pastoral staff keep their shoes on. I didn't say the last part. <laughs> so now we've got 48 hours with nothing to do. So since I used to live in northern Indiana, my wife used to live in northern Indiana, we said, oh, we'll just go kick around where we used to live. And we went to my little town I used to live in called Tippy Canoe, and we went to Winona Lake and saw the house that Barbara used to live in, and Billy's Sunday Tabernacle, where my wife set off the fire alarms and they had to have the fire department call. She loves it when I tell that. Well, we went to Napanee, which is nearby, and we ate in this Amish restaurant. And as we ate, I was watching this young Amish girl whose sole duty was to clean up. She was bussing tables. And I noticed out of the corner of my eye that as she was cleaning off the table, she would take a napkin and then she would take like part of the tip, like maybe like one of the dollar bills, and she would crumple it in the napkin and drop it in the trash. I thought, oh, we've got a scam artist here. If she gets caught, she, oh, I must have just grabbed that by accident. So I kept watching and sure enough, a couple tables over, she repeats the same thing, takes some of the tip, not all of it, some of the tip, wraps it up in a napkin, drops it in the trash, goes to another table a few minutes later, part of the tip, wraps it in a napkin, puts it in the trash. The perfect crime. Nobody will know. It's just a dollar here, it's just a dollar here. It's not that big of a deal, it's just a little piece of kale. Nothing will happen, nobody will know, no consequence to this. But she didn't realize that someone was watching. And I went, found the manager, and told the manager exactly what I witnessed. And that was more than one occasion. It wasn't a mistake. David's thinking, oh, this is just not that big of a deal. Don't be displeased. Problem. The Lord's displeased. Oh, this is not a big deal. No one's going to know. I mean, seriously, it's, it's all worked out. Now she's my wife, I'll raise her child. Everybody's thinking pretty good about me right now. But what David has done was evil in the sight of the Lord. You see, when we come to a passage like this, it's important for us to have some takeaways. Takeaways like, I can't have my focus on people Because if I try to lift people up in God's place, they can't stay there. We're all possible 
sinners. Takeaways like, I'm not immune. Takeaways like, I better watch out for self-dependence in my life. Being careful. When I start, especially when things are going good, that's when we start thinking, hey, this is going pretty good around here. I start thinking it's because of me, because of you. And slowly we stop coming to the Lord, asking for direction. Or coming to the Lord and saying, I need you. And we stop coming to him to hear from him in his book. And we start kind of ignoring parts of it. Or maybe we start thinking that sin isn't really that bad. It's just a little thing. It's just a little piece of kale. And we forget that the Lord sees. Sin always has consequence. You may be here this morning and and uh, you're very much aware of your sin. In fact, you know that your sin is keeping you from being right with God. I would encourage you not to leave today without knowing and hearing about how you can know that you can be right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. One of our elders will be back in the prayer room after the service and can give you some material that you can take and look up in your own Bible how you can know for sure that your sin is forgiven and you're right with God. Or maybe you're here and you're not going through a time of peace. You're going through a time of it's really rocky and hard. You just want to pray today. I encourage you to go back to the prayer room after we're done and pray. Father, we thank you for your word for the reminders in it of the dangers of self-dependence. In a very real way, David's battle was not lost on that rooftop. David's battle was lost months and years before as he steadily grew independent from God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.